All right, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, as we continue on in this wonderful text. We uh, pick it up where we left off last week. Last week we started into Philippians 1, 15 to 20, and we come back there tonight. We made it through the first part, and as we consider our title from last week's message, whether this way or that, we discussed this idea of unexpected events or, or unforeseen twists. This was the similar condition that we expected in verses 12 to 14, where we had the great introduction from Paul's prayer that we launched into in verses 3 to 11, and then we expected after that powerful start that maybe there would be a little bit of a lull before he picked back up, but indeed there wasn't. There was no twist, there was no uh, lull that came forward, but instead there was just this confident assertion of God's work amidst this seemingly ministry-ending condition which Paul found himself in with this arrest and this Roman jail which he writes this letter from. Well, the the idea of reversals is again brought forward in our text and was, as I mentioned, indicative of our title, whether this way or that. So let's go ahead and let's read through our text in Philippians 1 and verses 15 to 20 and talk about some of those details. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In our first point last week, we looked at a question. And the question of that first point was, preaching to what end? Preaching to what end? We saw Christ being preached from two perspectives. One negative perspective, namely those who were preaching from envy and from strife. And then we saw it from a positive perspective, those who were rather preaching Christ from goodwill. One group preaching out of love for Paul to further his gospel work and the other doing it for selfish gain and their own acclaim contrary to Paul's ministry. Both of these, as we discussed, are true gospel presentations. These are not the Judaizers. These are not the false believers or false prophets or false apostles that we see Paul speak about in his other epistles. 
They are both proclaiming the true gospel. And again, we talked about the details of those early verses that confirmed that last week. And I'd refer you to that message for some of those other components. But even at the end of verse 17, we couldn't answer the question of our first point. That is, we couldn't really answer preaching to what end. Even though we saw the contrast of our title, whether this way or that, and the contrast existing in those two perspectives that the gospel preached, we couldn't answer why those two perspectives occurred. We still didn't know what the end was. Namely, what was Paul going to do about those two different perspectives of the gospel being preached? So we went to verse 18 which says, what then, in answer to these two perspectives, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. The idea of pretense being motives which are false versus those which are true. So there's these two opposites that are being brought forward. And it is the motive notice that is that which is contrary to to the truth. That's why he uses the word pretense, because that is a false motive. And that motive was self-exaltation on those who were seeking envy and strife. They were still proclaiming a true gospel, but it was not under good pretenses. It was under the pretense of exalting themselves and tearing down Paul. But what we saw in this is that Paul doesn't get into the weeds with these detractors. Even though they are slinging mud, he refuses to stoop to that level. And we mentioned how this is a proper God-honoring and biblical respect for leaders in the church. That even when they are having others who are seeking to exalt themselves above their position or above them personally, that it is not proper for the leader, for the elder, for the pastor, for the deacon to turn around and feel like he needs to exalt himself or defend himself. Paul does not do so, nor should the leaders of the church. Rather, they need to understand, as we have seen emphasized even in our church, that until such time as the body is under attack, their role is to remain silent. And that's a difficult position to be in. But it's exactly the position that Paul was in. All he did is say, the gospel is going forth and that's what matters to me. They tear me down, oh well, let them tear me down. As long as the gospel is being proclaimed. And in that, he was rejoicing. Well, verse 18 not only answers the question of our first point, preaching to what end, that is, preaching to the end of rejoicing, whatever the end, but rather it launches us into our second point. And the second point of our message, our first being was preaching to what end, our second point is preaching, or excuse me, is rejoicing to what end. First point, preaching to what end. Second point, rejoicing to what end. What was the point of this rejoicing that Paul brings up here in verses 18 and 20? Well, as Paul launches into his first major discussion of joy in this book outside of 
his initial prayer back in verse 3 where he did mention joy. But here, he does it in abandonment of any concern for his circumstances. Twice bringing forth this idea of joy in verse 18. He rejoices whether they are for him or against him. That is whether they are in pretense or whether they are in truth. Again, that word pretense meaning false motives. That which is to cover up or to excuse. Paul doesn't get concerned with their motives. Only the outcome. That's all he's concerned about. You know, beloved, we have to recognize that very same component. It is the outcome that matters. When we are speaking to others, when we are speaking to loved ones, sometimes we are so concerned about our motive. Sometimes we feel like we might be speaking out of, uh, out of personal exaltation or out of personal revenge or that we might have a, a, a hidden motive as we're speaking to one of our children or to uh, someone else that's in our family, a brother or sister that does not know the Lord, perhaps a mother or father, to say, in some way, see all of this time, what I have known is right, and I want you to know that, but I want you to know that I'm right too. That, that's kind of part of our flesh. But Paul says, it's not an issue of the motive. Don't get hung up with the motive, only be focusing on what the desired outcome is. And that outcome is that Christ is proclaimed and that he is heard and that he is received. The outcome is that Christ is proclaimed and so he rejoices. Present tense verb indicating the ongoing action in present time. That is in verse 18. And in this I rejoice. Present tense. I am now rejoicing. At this time there is an ongoing rejoicing in me, Paul, as I am in prison in this Roman dungeon knowing that those outside are tearing me down. And they're saying that I deserve what's going on and that I am not to be considered a preacher because of weaknesses and gifting and every other consideration. And he rejoices. Of course he rejoices with those who are also preaching in line with him, in line with the goodwill of Christ, but in all of it, he is rejoicing. And then he goes on at the verse eight, end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. Notice the change in the verb tense. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. How important and how we see this in our English text. It's future, isn't it? I will rejoice. He is rejoicing right now, but he, he's saying emphatically, and yes, I will rejoice. Interestingly, and we don't really see this, and there's no way to convey this in English, this is actually even a future passive verb, which means that his rejoicing will be caused by someone else. Now, we're going to see who that someone else is here in just a minute, and it's pretty staggering to recognize this. But he is saying that there will be a future time that I will yet still rejoice. And in this future rejoicing comes this idea of our second point. He, he moves from what has been going on in the current state, in the present state, and in the, and in the recent past, these who are preaching contrary and preaching for him. And then he moves on to what might be happening in the future. But his attitude is the same. Whatever is happening in the future, I will rejoice. Now, 
we might say, as we, as we thought of that kind of attitude, we'd say, well, we know people like that. That's a, that's a glass half full person, right? It's not a glass half empty. This is a person who's a positive person. And we like being around those kind of people. Those that just naturally lift us up and say, you know, it might be storming a little right now, but we wait five minutes, the sun's going to come out, and it's going to be beautiful. And so that is the perspective that Paul has as he comes forward. He is rejoicing. Paul's rejoicing despite his circumstance. It is something that is so common in Scripture. God is always telling us that we ought be rejoicing despite our circumstances. Listen to a a few different examples from Scripture and the Lord telling us in various places that we ought be rejoicing despite our circumstances. The first comes from Psalm chapter 4 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 4 and verse 7. You put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. The context of the verses around Psalm 4, verse 7, and the Psalms around show that the psalmist is under quite a bit of attack. Remember, Psalm 1 begins with this parallel of the righteous and the wicked. And then it goes into talking about the wicked and their effect. And he says, you know, I will lay down in peace because it is you who is in control. And is that not the perspective, beloved, that we have to have? When we see things going on in Texas, when we see storms, when we see things happening in Las Vegas and shootings, we need to realize God's in charge. And we need to lay down in peace. We need to let him be God because it isn't going to do us any good to worry. It isn't going to do us any good to get all uptight, to be fearful, to be anxious, to be worried, to be angry. We can't do that. That's God's job. Our job is to rejoice in what God is doing. We see the same thing in uh, just a, a little bit back in, in one of Paul's first major doctrinal epistles in Romans chapter 12. And in verse 12, this very same idea of rejoicing despite our circumstances. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Is this us? Yes, that's what it has to be. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. We have to continually have that heartbeat and that mindset of rejoicing Uh, A little later in Paul's excellent second epistle to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says of himself, as he goes through this laundry list of all that he has gone through, beatings and imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, purity of knowledge and word of truth, as unknown yet well-known, dying yet behold we live, punished yet not put to death. And then in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, as sorrowful yet rejoicing. Can you do that? Can you rejoice even when you're sorrowful? Only if we understand what rejoicing and joy are all about, right? They are not synonymous with happiness. Here's our world's problem, right? We want to do everything to be happy. I I, got to be happy, right? And 
and it's, it's an understandable thing. We, we like to be happy. We like other people around us happy. You know, I remember my dad saying as I was growing up and going through college, you know, and he'd say, Scott, all I want for you is I want you to be happy. I appreciate his perspective. I love my dad beyond measure, but he was just wrong. Because there are times where we're going to be sorrowful. But if we understand that God is in charge, if we understand that he is sovereign over anything, we can still have joy in that sorrow because we can know that God is using it. God is wasting nothing. God is not capricious. He is not bringing judgment. He is not bringing sickness. He is not bringing death to no end. He'll use them all. And we need to rejoice in that. And it is a critical component. And this is why he brings this over and over again. That this idea of joy and rejoicing are not connected with the world's perspective of happiness. And that we can have joy in sorrow. Because it is a confident resolve and trust in God. And that draws us back to our second point. Rejoicing to what end? Verse 19 carries us on as we see Paul at the end of 18 say, yes, and I will rejoice. And in verse 19, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul had previously elevated himself above his detractors by saying, and in this I rejoice. I don't care what they're doing. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And now he presses himself again above all future detractors and by saying, I will rejoice. Paul's rejoicing comes in the confidence in his deliverance in verse 19. It's very interesting to recognize again that here we have another future verb coming forward we're going to see a whole bunch of them so keep your eyes open in your english text for that helping verb will which shows the future tense for i know that this will turn out for my deliverance as your new american standard bible notes this is the word salvation So we could read that first part of verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And this is where some commentators get all sideways. And so we've seen people change the the connotation and the word that they used in different versions of our Bible. It's not talking about salvation with regards to Paul's spiritual condition. And his transformation from death to life from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ. There's another component of salvation that's going to be discussed here. And we want to keep our eyes open for that because it's very important and it has a very big impact for each of us in our lives. So note that that is an important change in words that could be made. Deliverance is fine, but again, the main meaning of that word is salvation. And it's not talking about his spiritual transformation we'll see the accuracy of this word as we get to verse 20 he says there in verse 19 and i know that this will turn out for my deliverance what is this important that we understand what he's talking about this is his time in jail 
I know that this time in jail will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation, through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But Paul has this great confidence because of their prayer. Okay, now we've seen this word for prayer. So we've got to kind of put our thinking caps on and back up to verse 4 and where it says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Remember the kind of prayer we were talking about there? It was a very unique Greek word and the prayer was supplication. It was asking, it was pleading, it was intercession. So Paul is again referring to the fact that he realizes this church in Philippi who he's been away from 12 years, they love him so much that they are pleading constantly to God on behalf of this imprisonment. How important is it for us to plead for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I need to suggest that I could bring Dave Manderson up here and he could spend about the next not hour or two hours, but probably two to three weeks talking about the prayers that were brought up on his behalf? How vital is it that we have a prayer service on Wednesday night and we take part of our time? I would love to preach. You probably wouldn't know that. But I probably could come up here and I could take an hour and 45 minutes and I could just go. And it'd be wonderful. But how vital is it that we understand the needs of our body and that we spend time bringing them before the Lord and we spend time bringing them back to our remembrance. And that's what Paul's saying. I know that these will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is an incredible consideration. His confidence is also because of the provision of the Spirit of Christ. The provision of the Spirit is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 10 and verse 19. Let me turn back there. You can turn with me if you'd like. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 19. We see this in three of the four Gospels. And in Matthew 10 and 19, the Lord is talking to us about the difficulties that come before us. How appropriate as Paul's in prison here, in Caesar's prison, in the prison which only the nastiest of the nasty end up, and most of them end up with very horrific deaths as a result of their time. And in Matthew 10 and verse 19, as the Lord is talking about these hard roads, um, well, let's just go back to verse 16 for context. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Where's Paul? Caesar's prison. What did the Lord say to Paul? Paul, don't worry. You must make testimony before me in Rome. Paul, don't worry. I am with you. You must speak before Caesar. The Lord said that they would be given over to kings. Why? For a testimony to the Gentiles, to him. And here Paul is making this powerful testimony. Verse 19, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour 
what you are to say. When you are in that position where your life is being brought before your eyes as a result of your faith, that's the circumstance that's being talked about here. This isn't with regards to evangelism. This isn't with regards to conversations with our neighbors such that we don't need to read our Bibles or don't need to be ready to interact with people on the street. This is, these are life-ending circumstances. He says, in that hour, I will give you what you need to say. Paul's confidence back in verse 19 of Philippians 1, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that he will speak what he is supposed to speak for his deliverance, for his salvation. Interesting word, interesting word, keep an eye on it. Well, as we consider this proclamation that is he is bringing forth, we understand that the word provision here, or in some versions, supply, in the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is not a weak provision. <laughs> when we're trusting in the Spirit of Jesus Christ for provision, we're not going to need anything else. It's not going to be, well, I'd like a little spirit and, you know, I'd like a little bit of dynamite to help me in this whole jail thing, maybe for a little backdoor escape. No. When we've got the spirit of Jesus Christ, we have everything. The word provision is intensified here in the original to show us that it is abundant supply. Everything that you will need, Paul, you will have in Christ Jesus. Rest in that. Understand that he is with you. So Paul's strong confidence in their prayer and provision of the Holy Spirit is part of what's bringing him this rejoicing. And we see more of his rejoicing even in verse 20 where it says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. As Paul further discusses his trial, it almost seems like a man who is very overconfident, doesn't it? I mean, think of some of that terminology. Here's a guy who's in the nastiest of nasty jails. Okay, I mean, I, I don't know what you want to, to parallel this with, but when we think of, uh, what is the, the prison in Louisiana? Um, oh, I know it so well. Burl Kane is the, uh, the warden at the prison. Angola, thank you, Angola. 90% uh, of the prisoners serving life sentences, many of them serving multiple life sentences. They're never getting out. It's considered the hellhole of Louisiana. And Burl Kane has turned the place upside down by bringing the gospel forward. He's got a book um, that I've got downstairs that is absolutely breathtaking. Because these men have become so focused on Christ, they've started writing Bible studies. I've got a Bible study downstairs that the men from Angola Prison written called Malachi Dads. And it's gone throughout the United States prison system and it is setting the prison systems of this country on fire. We took it to the Los Angeles County jail system. 20,000 inmates. The largest prison population in the United States. 20,000 men. And, and the conversions are staggering. 
Many of these men also in life or life plus sentences. And they're recognizing Christ because of what these other prisoners have done. It is, you know, and it's in these horrific conditions that the gospel is coming forward with such power. But Paul is in this kind of condition and he's proclaiming, I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. I'm all good here. I'm really not worried about it. I got your prayer. I got the provision of the Spirit. And it's my earnest expectation and hope that I'll not be put to shame in anything. And you think, Paul, you know, have you been a little short of food and water? Are you getting a little lightheaded here? Don't you realize where you are? And the reality is, if this were a regular perspective of a man bringing this forward, this could be exactly that kind of overconfidence. We all know men who are overconfident. We all know those who are boastful. You know, I love the term that I heard coined when I was teaching at the Master's College by some of the hermeneutic students, and I'm sure that it's probably well before that. But they called these the me monsters. You know, the me monster. Me, 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 me. You know, everything's about me. We know those guys, right? And you're just like, oh no, here's Mr. Such and Such, and I'm going to hear about all of his, you know, acclaims over his life again and again and again. But that's not what Paul is doing. This is not Paul. His confidence is in the gospel, not in himself or in his situation. And the rest of the verse confirms this. Let's look again at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's earnest expectation literally means, the, the literal translation of that verb would be watching for something so fervently that your neck and your head are stretching out to see it. You know, can you relate to that? I remember when I would be at grandma's house and, and we were little kids and grandpa would be out in the field haying all day and we'd be so excited for grandpa to come home. I don't know why, but we were, you know, maybe it was something about the fact that he'd, you know, spit chewing tobacco in that gaboon and you'd hear it make that big ping. Um, but we just loved Grandpa and we loved having him around and we'd be looking up the road waiting for Grandpa's truck to come down the road. And it's that kind of expectation that's being spoken about here. We see that same word used in Romans 8.19. In Romans 8, 19, we're told about the eager expectation that creation has, longing to be delivered from the shackles of sin. Well, that's the same thing. This is a function of his hope. And notice hope, much like our idea of joy, Hope is not a worldly hope. Hope is not, well, I, I'm going to go spend two bucks on the lottery because I got it in my pocket and I got to get gas anyway and I hope that I'm going to hit. That's not it. Hope is the sh assured confidence that this is going to happen. That's biblical hope. This is not the hope as the world has. So when Paul talks here about his earnest expectation and hope, he is sure that this is going to move forward. This, again, is because of the Holy Spirit of Christ's work from verse 19. 
the effect of this is that he will not be put to shame, that he will not be found lacking in anything. We can understand that. You know, I mean, some people just, just have a, a fear of speaking in public. And if you don't, um, let me know, you guys that haven't preached before, and I'll have you do the message next Wednesday night. And I guarantee you, by the time you get up here, you'll be a little white, you'll get pretty flat, and you might normally be kind of animated and fun, and you'll just be, oh no, what do I say now? And most of us know that who have done any public speaking. And preaching, every time I'm preaching, I'm wondering, you know, what am I going to say? Lord, help me to say what's right. Help me to not stumble. And so, but Paul comes forward not with those perspectives, but with this confidence that he will not be put to shame in anything, that whatever he says, there will be no lack. That's because it's not what he's saying. It's what the Spirit of Christ is bringing to him. That which is in full measure. Every word that he brings, God is going to bring through him. And it's going to be for Christ's exaltation. And it's going to be for the proclamation of the gospel. The opposite scenario here is to him being found lacking is that Christ will be exalted. And it comes from Paul's boldness. We, we see there that it says that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted. Christ will be exalted in my body. It's, a, it's a, again, a future verb because it's not yet happened. It will, he will be exalted. And be is that passive form again. It's not Paul who's bringing it about. It's the Spirit of God that's bringing it about. That is why Christ will be exalted because it is the Spirit's desire. If it weren't passive, it would be him boasting. But it's not but it's God doing it through him. And as always, it says here, as always, even now. Whenever Paul spoke in these situations, and let's face it, he's been in a lot of them, right? He's been before Felix, he's been before Festus, he's been before Agrippa, he's been stoned, he's been before the Jews in Jerusalem where they sought to tear him apart, he's been before the Romans as they stretched him out with thongs and were gonna scourge him. He's had a lot of these opportunities. And now, as always, Christ will be exalted. It's just such a beautiful proclamation that continues to go forth. For Paul, that exaltation will come either by his life or by his death. Our question of rejoicing to what end is now answered. Rejoicing to what end, it's whether this way or that. It doesn't matter to him. Whether my life or whether my death, I don't care. Because the only thing that matters is the gospel. That's what I'm here for. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and my life means nothing. My only value is to speak the words that my Lord gives me. My only worth is to bring forward the gospel proclamation that others may hear, that they may know this rejoicing, that they may feel this empowerment and know His Spirit thriving in me to bring forth this truth. It is just incredible for us to understand this. And it answered whether in life or death, whether this way or that, Christ is exalted. Notice the the transition throughout our verses. We go back to verse 15. Christ is preached. Good thing? 
Absolutely, very good thing. Then we go to verses 17 and 18. Christ is proclaimed. First he's preached, then he's proclaimed. Two different times, as we talked about, this is a much broader proclamation. The preaching would have been one done by an elder or by a pastor, by one who was gifted for that work, specifically indicated by that verb, keruso. But now proclaimed, this is anybody. This is by all of those that have the Spirit of Christ that are proclaiming him. So he's preached and he's proclaimed, and now in verse 20, he is exalted. There is this escalation of Christ that is going on. And Paul says, this is it. That's all I care about. It's all that matters is that Jesus Christ is made prominent. And of course, that leads us into our next verse in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It applies to us, doesn't it, beloved? We understand here that the salvation that we talked about back in verse 19 is talking about his eternal deliverance, whether life or death. It doesn't matter to him. It will work out for his salvation. He will be with Christ either way. He will be on earth proclaiming Christ to live as Christ, or he will be in heaven with Christ to die as gain. It's all about that eternal salvation. And so it is for us as well. We have to understand that incredible blessing that exists in our lives also. Because we will all face that. Are we trusting to this end? Are we living our lives to the extent that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can I just say for myself, probably not. I need to do better. I need to grow in this. But the issue is not whether we can achieve what Paul achieved. The issue for us is what is our next level? What is it in our life that we need to be trusting God more for now? Is it physical challenges that we have? Is it financial challenges? Is it understanding a a, a deeper just a time of peace with where God has placed me? Is it pushing harder after him, trusting more in his word? We each are at a place in our lives where God wants us to trust more and push ahead. We may not yet be ready to say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but every one of us are at a place where we need to trust more. We need to trust with our lives. We need to trust with a family's life. We need to trust with a a, a sibling or a son or a daughter. And in that way, as we trust more at this point, we're able to press beyond that. And we're able to move towards more this reality of this escalation of Christ, preached, proclaimed, and exalted. Because when we get to that point where Christ is exalted in our lives, in all things, where he comes naturally out of our mouths as freely as Spurgeon said, you cut the man and he bleeds bibline, that's where we need to be. We are all about the gospel. We We are living, breathing elements where the gospel is pumping through our hearts and our veins and Christ is glorified. And as we grow into the next step that he has for us now, we're gonna get closer to that. And this is part of why the church is so vital. Because we need to help one another. Because every one of us falls short in some way. And it's as we confess that, as we share with one another, and as we help one another, as we pray for one another, 
that God moves these things forward. It is such a delight to recognize the joy that exists in this Christian life and in this beautiful Christian fellowship at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. What a delight it is for us to focus on the joy that is in our Lord and to continue encouraging those around us. So grateful that you're here, that we can focus on this together.